Welcome to the Marketing Science Podcast, the podcast for sales and marketing professionals working within science, engineering, and healthcare. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. And our guest today is Michelle Nichols, president of Launch Team, a sales and marketing partner focused on sustainable growth for companies in tech, medical, and engineering industries. Michelle, thanks for joining me today. A lot's changed since we last spoke back in March. How's 2020 been for you? How's it been for the clients that you've been working with? What are the big trends? What are the surprises? You know, for a really challenging year, there are some good that came out of that. In some ways, those who'd already made the pivot to a digital marketing strategy kept their growth trajectory. You know, we saw one client in the space who kept up a 35% growth in traffic and leads over 2019. And we saw that across the industry, that the interest and the demand was still there. It may impact speed of sales cycles, for sure, as companies were more risk averse, but the leads and the interest and the opportunity were there. It depended on a lot on how quickly the companies could pivot and how much they'd embrace the strategy to date. What's involved in the pivot? What what do the day-to-day sort of changes look like? When you say pivot, I'm thinking ability to manage projects, ability to communicate internally, sort of streamlining all those processes. Oh, absolutely. They were fighting against headwinds because of the sheer demands on operations for moving their people, switching to remote worrying about supply chain issues, that ate up an awful lot of bandwidth. So it was, what was their dedication to marketing and how quickly could they adapt? Instead of aligning a product launch, let's say at a major trade show, could they move that to entirely digital and keep their timeline and the impact of that? So we saw a lot of success there in remaining commitment to their product development product launch cycle and shifting from a trade show focused marketing plan to virtual events and richer content marketing and social. You must have launched a few products over the last few months. What does that look like when everybody's grounded at home? There's still the same need to create that unveiling, that event, and some excitement in their audience. And so in many cases, a social media teaser campaign did an awful lot of good. In some, we changed how we measured that success. Could we create a wait list of people who were interested in the technology once ready, pre-launch? that was the measurable we were going for because it might have had impact on production capability or supply chain. So we were building pre-interest in some cases. Those were quite successful. We, in years prior, had had great luck going live on social media at a major trade show to unveil a new product or a new capability. And so to shift that sheerly virtual was an easy change and kept the same kind of impact. People were certainly spending more time on social media and consuming more. So how, how do you build that demand? How do you create that wait list? What sort of tactics are you employing? You're teasing first the problem and then the potential, You know, creating awareness around an application space of a problem or an opportunity. And then it's, it's a multi-layer approach from social into an article or a blog post into a white paper or a virtual demo, something more engaging with a little bit more technical depth. 
Moving on, I want to focus more about digital marketing, but specifically around the kind of technical engineering and manufacturing firms. But how would that differ from, say, B2B or even B2C? How do you view that as a specific difference? Engineering and scientific companies have some advantages in that they can be very targeted and very specific in who they're reaching and the applications they're addressing. So there's some efficiencies, some cost advantages, and they can be more compelling in that outreach because you can't appeal to everyone with everything. But in many ways, those companies need to remember that they're not so different, that people are people, and that you have to appeal to them individually and personally to get them to take action. Anything other than status quo is a risk. So you need to understand that individual decision maker and what drives them to get them to take that risk. How many decision makers would you say that you're typically dealing with? Is it one or do you have to deal with maybe a few more hidden influences and decision makers? There's typically eight to 12. It would surprise you on a complex deal. Mm. And so those different decision makers have different motivations, different concerns, and a different level of technical expertise. The commonality is they all need to believe that they understand the technology they're buying. And so hitting them at the right level is really important. Can you go into a bit more detail on the kind of people that we're trying to reach? So let's say we're selling a technical solution to an engineering firm. There's a guy on the floor who's using it. There's the CFO who's going to be paying for it and signing it off. There's the manager. Who do we have to to reach and influence? The, the technician, the user, as you mentioned, the engineer, the engineering manager. There's typically a PM type role in that, and that person may be the one doing the research. In the scientific community, that may be a PI. Certainly finance, the CFO, CEO, you need the executive level summary. And that is certainly a brief overview. We've got to hit those concise points for that decision to be approved, and that is building the business case. What is the ROI on the solution? And in many cases, there's a board or committee involvement. I presume we are talking sort of over a certain ticket price. Yes. Typically, those deal sizes, those opportunities are 100000 But even in the 25 or 30 grand, there's four or five decision makers. Uh, what continues to surprise me within the academic lab setting is that sole decision-making price is a little higher than I expected. That has edged up over time. But still at 2530, there are multiple decision-makers to appeal to. We've just done the State of Scientific Marketing Survey, so all of the information will be coming out on that. And we've got a, a similar survey for the State of Scientific Purchasing, and that's a question that we sort of we dive into. We did it a couple of years ago where we're asking about sort of deal size, number of decision makers, and I can't wait to get the new data back and see how that's evolved over, over the last couple of years, so looking from 2021 and beyond. So my next question is, which digital lead generation strategies are most manufacturing businesses using well? Social media is the biggest opportunity at hand. It's a mixed bag as to how well they're using them, mm-hmm. but they are generating leads and traffic from social media. That is also a platform where we're seeing the highest if you're looking specifically at LinkedIn, which is usually the entry point for these companies, the best lead conversion rate of the bunch. Content, I think these engineering scientific companies have a natural advantage in content. They have technical expertise to demonstrate. They have the data to back it up. 
and they enjoy the role as educator in many cases. How much pushback do you get from the C-suite when you talk about the importance of social media or social selling? Social media is actually a goldmine of data and information and reaching the right people. How do you breach that into the C-suite and convince a skeptical CEO of, of the benefits of it? There's a lot of skepticism around marketing in general. We get a lot of pushback when it comes to social media because the automatic assumption is that's what platforms you spend time on in your personal life, Facebook, Twitter, those all have a role, but they're not where you'll generate leads specifically from technical content. That's not what people are generally thinking about or interested in when they're on that. We do see Twitter playing a significant role in driving traffic to events, specifically virtual events, but less so on content. LinkedIn, as I mentioned, would be the natural entry point. And once you narrow and clarify that for them, they're on board. They also easily make the correlation of YouTube. They use YouTube to troubleshoot engine repair, that it may be a natural place that engineers would go to for how-to information. How do you see social selling? How, how are the leading salespeople positioning themselves on social platforms? For those who do it well, they're making a daily habit of participating on social media. And they're seeing that as a, an important part of their role. And they quickly adapted to the same sales behaviors that they needed to do in a one-on-one -on -one or a trade show environment to do from home. I am still seeing too many sales teams say that they can't wait to get back out there. And those companies, in fact, can't wait to get back out there. Their salespeople need to embrace platforms like LinkedIn, participate, put value out into the world, and they need to consider how they're going to build rapport and trust through video, because that's the means at hand, and how are they going to give a great demo. And that varies tremendously based on product or capabilities. But we need to be able to offer that capability from afar. And I don't see that changing quickly. Even when they're ready to get back out does not mean they're invited back in. So I was talking to a colleague the other day about their sales approach. And he was telling me that he still has a lot of success with, well, maybe not so much anymore, but turning up at the headquarters, turning up at the office, handing out donuts, baskets of you know gifts and goodies and things, getting to know the gatekeepers, and then you know eventually getting the sort of meeting. How do you view that? You mentioned video and sharpening the tools within a toolkit of a salesperson. So what tools are there out there and how would you recommend a salesperson adapt uh, in today's environment? It takes a bit of work. And I think we have to recognize what face-to-face -face value there was and how do we replicate that? You know, there is something very real about breaking bread together, but you can build a relationship with someone without going to dinner. We have seen great success with virtual lunch and learns, you know, sending Grubhub and physically eating lunch together while we cover a topic. Um, that adds a little element of relationship building to a meeting. Sending a personal note that's handwritten after an important meeting makes gives you something tangible to it. We're going to need to work a little bit harder on our relationships right now. I want to ask about virtual events. I know offline we were talking before about how you worked with lots of event providers and organizers. How's the pandemic? Obviously, it's hit them quite hard. How they adapted? What have you seen work well in terms of science and engineering and manufacturing events? 
It is such a mixed bag. We haven't had the time to standardize on what an excellent virtual event means yet. And so association to association, they're so different. When we didn't expect much from a trade show we would normally attend, we've had great success with do-it-yourself, with hosting a webinar during that time slot that people would normally be traveling to a trade show and self-promoting and doing the same pre and post show campaigns that we would have done prior. And those have really replicated the lead count of the prior year's show. I'm happy with those. Some of the smaller regional organizations, the very narrow organizations, have done a really nice job at multimedia um, in that they're using AI-facilitated matchmaking for one-on-one meetings as part of that platform alongside a speaker track. They're timing their speaker sessions in a way that matches people's current attention spans. You know, that's a half-day event instead of a four-day event with shorter slots. I'm seeing nice success with breakout rooms with trained moderators. We need to recognize that in any of these virtual events, the same effort you would have put into or should have put into booth training before, we need to do again because it's a different skill set. So those moderators, those that are manning a virtual booth or chat need that same kind of training. Can you explain a bit more about AI facilitated matchmaking? I think I might be able to guess, but could you uh, enlighten us? Sure. In registration, they're exploring for your interest and expertise, and they're recommending people you could meet with in 10 or 15 minute slots. And so over the course of a half a day conference, you may meet a half a dozen people for sheer networking that are a match to your interests. Again, it comes back to willingness to learn new things, but love the innovation. I was at an online uh, awards presentation. So you're in lots of little different, effectively, Zoom rooms, four people on a table, and then 50 different breakout rooms. And then when it's time for the next award, you can actually, it cuts out the conversation. Everybody has to pay attention, basically. So you can have your social, you can have your chat, which is sort of like lots of different one-on-one conversations, which is better, of course, than if you had 50 people in a room, only one person can talk and 50 people have to listen. So it's it's figuring out, you know, the etiquette and what works well and what humans will sort of withstand and what they'll put up with. But it's it's amazing the innovation that's available in the marketplace now. I love that they're treating it as an experiment. It's a measured experiment. Let's try different mediums. Let's see what works. You work a lot in marketing strategy and advising companies as to how to get tech that will enable them to kick on and grow as companies and and launch products. Which uh, technology platforms have you been most impressed by and which couldn't you do without in, in the marketer's toolkit? Certainly we're platform agnostic. For most of the companies in the size ranges we deal with, HubSpot is the best scalable platform. And they can start with CRM, move into marketing, move into sales automation, uh, move into service hub functionality. So that is typically the best growth tool. And I'm impressed with some of the new functionality, how much they're building out on that platform. That's something we're seeing a lot of companies invest in and also integrate into ERPs. So they're really embracing a 360 view of the business and the customer. We have seen great success on a company that may not be right fit for that yet on SharpSpring. That's been a solid toolkit for us. Certainly we do an awful lot in Salesforce and Pardot and all the way up into 
enterprise level solutions like Eloqua, but HubSpot is the most scalable of the bunch. Whatever the tool, I am a big advocate for love the one you're with. How much of the tool are you going to use? How much of your workforce is going to use it? The mix and match within classes of tools is where companies are adding a lot of complexity and cost. They're trying to integrate too many tools. So if you were trying to go just on cost, say you could try to get the cheapest CRM, the cheapest marketing automation, the cheapest email platform, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to have a lot of headaches down the, the road. Yes, they are integratable in most cases, and it doesn't mean you should. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating learning about, because obviously we don't use all of the technologies, but I've heard SharpSpring mentioned by a few clients. How do they differentiate? What's so exciting about them? They have created the same functionality as most of the leading tools, and they're coming in at a mid-price point. So for some of these scale-up tools like HubSpot, where they have starter and professional and into enterprise, that's a big jump between them. And I think SharpSpring falls neatly in the middle. So for a you know moderate growth company who's going to use this toolkit for a few years, it's at a good price point with the same functionality. So in the sort of industries that we work in, say engineering, lasers, you know, manufacturing, stuff that's very technical with lots of data sheets, it can often be quite a challenge. And it's one of the biggest challenges that we see come through is how to make engaging content. So how do you spice up content from something that's maybe a typically dry industry? It's dry and we like it that way in some cases, but to draw you in, to get you to engage in it is where I think there's a lot of room for growth and experimentation. Uh, We need to be trying different mediums, podcasts, web, video, before drawing into a more in-depth piece of content. Companies need to have an opinion. Controversy is good. That content can invite debate and input. You're trying to be credible and build the case for a technology, but it is very useful to be argumentative as well. Take a stand. It also needs to demonstrate a real understanding of the prospect and the problem more so than focused on the product to really explore and pay off the cost of that problem because you're helping your prospect make the business case to their management that it's a problem worth solving. That's the cost of entry, to have a problem worth solving. And how do you use the content then to facilitate the lead generation? And can you just create SQLs or are they a function of how many MQLs you get? And are they a function of how much content that you create? You know, Can you only focus on generating content and generating engagement from the top end of the funnel? Or are there some tricks where you can maybe accelerate a few of those SQLs? I think that unless the prospect raises their hand for help. The salesperson has to earn the SQL. MQLs, the prospect can earn the conversion from lead to MQL in that they're receptive to what you're putting out. They've hit your website. They've opened that email. They've clicked on that link. We can lead score automatically based on their industry and their company size and their job title to make sure the prospect is qualified and demonstrating some real interest and receptiveness to your solution. That is how you can really automate in large part the conversion from lead to MQL, marketing qualified lead. 
to make it an SQL, unless they're raising their hand, they're asking for a quote, they're requesting a consult or a meeting, that's earned. That takes a touch point from that salesperson to really look at the data, have a hypothesis on what that prospect's interested in or working on, do a little research on the company, and have some questions to see if they're actively working on a problem that's a good fit. So say we've got a Fortune 500 C-suite director, lands on your website, one brochure download and then leaves. Pretty low behavioral score. And then you've got a maybe a small business who maybe doesn't match the same title, but they've been all over your website and you know they've downloaded 10 brochures and watched webinars and they know all about your product. Which one of those is more qualified? Which one do you pass through to sales? Those two cases both deserve to jump the queue, but the salesperson still needs to do the work. The Fortune 50 may not be ready to talk to you, so you've got to show up with an interesting question. You've done your homework, you have a hypothesis of what they might be working on, and you have an interesting question for them. You can't simply sell at them and expect they're ready to hear it. So the startup company that's hit your website 10 times... Same thing. That's let's explore for fit. Let's see if this is a good fit versus me selling to you. We don't know that they're a qualified buyer yet, but they're obviously working on something and it's bound to be interesting. Let's ask. Let's explore for fit. So whenever we do lead scoring, we score on characteristics first. So location, country, titles. I think, yeah, a research director from New York would probably score quite highly just on the characteristic fit alone. And then, of course, you multiply that by what sort of behavior they've taken. Have they done in-depth behavior on bottom of funnel pages? That's kind of the way we go. As long as the salesperson's got context, and again, that comes to integrating all your data into the CRM and having a single source of truth. If you're just handing leads over and saying these two are equal, then that's when you start to have a bit of friction and maybe that alignment of sales and marketing goes out the window. But if you can give them context on the lead's journey and the characteristics and the behavior that they've taken to get to that stage in your CRM, I think that's when you can have some really um, efficient processes and, and optimized results. Okay, just before we, we wrap things up, I just wanted to ask you about the future of marketing and what, I suppose, what you're most looking forward to when we return to normal, air quotes, and how you see the future of marketing. In the context of marketing, miss most creative sessions in person. The, the process of creating marketing strategy that's very tactile and tangible, we've replicated it quite nicely, um, but I will be glad to see that return. I think there is something to be said across the board for all of the senses in any of these experiences that make it memorable that we haven't quite managed yet in a virtual environment. I do think that's where we're headed. I don't think we're going to go 100% back. Trade shows won't be what they were before in that, boy, we were asking an awful lot of our sales team for those companies that were doing 26 trade shows a year. Uh, that burns out a team fast. As we get back, we've got to figure out what hybrid looks like. How do we capitalize on the gains of remote work and virtual events and, and this experience and recognizing we're not going to come back to 100% in-person experience. Yeah, it's something that HubSpot have been doing for some time and I try and get over to Boston, but it's, it's transatlantic flight, so I can't do it every time. But if you can't make it, then it doesn't matter where you are in the world because they, they record it and they do that very well. They've always been ahead of the curve on, on that respect. 
Well, thanks. Thanks for taking the time to speak to me today, Michelle. We'll see you in the upcoming Marketing Science webinar series, which uh, more information will be available shortly. And have a good day. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much. Again, a big thank you to Michelle there for sharing her insights over what has been a challenging year. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. We'll be back again next week with more fascinating insights from the Marketing Science Podcast. Podcast.